Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. Father Christmas is, as we speak, pumping his reindeer full of antifreeze and monster energy drink to keep them going on their long journey, delivering presents to children who probably don't deserve any. And accompanying him is more good news, the vaccine rollout. The end is almost in sight, if we don't think too much about the fallout. Pensioners in particular will benefit from the long-awaited cure for coronavirus, though we recommend Father Christmas does not leave needles in their stockings, but not so much good news for current employees and active members, especially in retail, already suffering from Father Christmas's tendency to order from Amazon rather than the high street. A number of names synonymous with the high street have been dumped into insolvency by the onset of the pandemic, so we'll survey the damage and ask what can be done about that. Then we'll get properly festive with a bit of RPI reform, Research shared with pensions expert by Insight Investment suggests that reforming the measure of inflation itself had inflationary effects, as the supply of index-linked bonds failed to keep track or keep up with rebounding demand for inflation hedging following the closure of the RPI reform consultation. What does this mean for schemes and their liabilities? We will wait and see. And finally, while everyone else is deciding what of the random tap they picked up during the Black Friday sales should be given to which of their dearest relatives and loved ones, and pondering how to make that seem like a deliberate, thoughtful gift. Trustees are being warned not to forget about the new Competition and Markets Authority rules governing self-certification, with the January 7th deadline much closer than perhaps it seems. So we'll ask whether trustees are ahead of the game or playing catch-up as the year nears its end. I'm Benjamin Mercer, reporter at Pensions Experts, and I'm joined today by Joe Myerson, Trustee Director at Ross Trustees, and by David Ray, Head of Strategic Client Solutions at Russell Investments. So thank you both very much for joining me. If we begin then with insolvencies, it's the most miserable of our topics, so I thought I'd get it out of the way at the top. Uh, Debenhams and Philip Green's Arcadia Group collapsed into administration at the start of the month. The pension schemes of both are now in the PPF assessment period. There has been some interesting talk about the possibility of the pension super fund stepping in to save the Arcadia schemes, uh, which we might come on to. But for now, Joe, if you could kick us off on this one. Trustees are at the forefront of all these talks between sponsors, members and all the rest. There are going to be more insolvencies coming, we assume. Obviously, once you're in the PPF assessment period, it's too late to start worrying about transfers. But for those who aren't yet in the PPF, but fear that's where they're likely to end up, uh, take us through the thought processes of a trustee, if you will. Is there anything that can be done to assuage members' concerns, uh, members who are worried that they might end up in the PPF assessment period? I think I would pick up on the last point first, but Benjamin, because I think it's really, really key. The last thing that you want at the moment when facing a PPF assessment period is for members to take fright and start thinking about transferring out their benefits. Um, And the reason for that is that it's an obvious target for scammers and for um, dodgy IFAs to come along and and start targeting members. So for me, the first thing, one of the first things I would think about if I was in that position is what can I do to reassure members that we're doing our absolute best for them and that the benefits are in the right place And I think the communications are 100% the most important thing. As long as the trustees start communicating, then hopefully members will be able to make the right decisions for them. That doesn't mean they can't transfer out. It just means that they, they make sure that they get reputable advice and don't get targeted by scammers. So I think after that, once you've settled the membership and made sure that everybody is relatively safe, um, in terms of their benefits it's then down to business and there's a huge project there aligning the ppf aligning the corporate the regulator will be involved and the pensions assessment period takes quite some time and it's a it's a well-trodden path for trustees that follows through and then of course what is interesting is where you're going to get to at the end of it what is the best method for making sure that members get as much of their benefits as possible 
for some people, their pension protection fund is, is going to do that because their benefits are below the waterline. For other pension schemes with different types of membership, maybe a super fund is going to be the answer. And it's a very exciting and ideal time for the regulator to be looking at, at bringing these into the forefront. David, do you want to come in on this, on this super funds one in particular? It always seems, whenever I speak to anybody about any related subject, they always say this it just demonstrates it's a perfect time for super funds to step in, but it's always a hypothetical. I mean, would you anticipate seeing this accelerating the move to their actual introduction, or is it going to remain hypothetical for a while? I think the timing is, is very interesting, and as, as Joe says, the discussions around the super funds have been interesting. And I think we begin to get that point of real test cases, real life situations where trustees are in the midst of making those complex and difficult decisions about what is best for the members' interests. And as Joe has already mentioned, sometimes it's the PPF is the best solution for members, but there may be alternatives. And, and I think we may well be in this situation, given the economic damage inflicted by the pandemic, where we see this in potential increase in insolvencies, and then more situations where trustees are actually seeing the existing sponsor doesn't represent a covenant that is of value to the members, but their benefits may be better supported by the super funds rather than the PPF. And, and I think it is an exciting time for that to be happening and, and a time at which there are going to be a lot of trustees facing these difficult decisions. And I think that progress has been made in terms of the, the legislation and the regulations surrounding super funds. And there's a bit more of an established structure around them is beneficial as well for trustees. And Chicho, if I can come back to you on, on this point about members and transfers, I saw some research, I think yesterday from LCP, which suggested that even if there are rumours that a sponsor might end up going insolvent or going bankrupt, there's a surge of interest by members in transferring out of that scheme. And I think that there were some amendments, I think, to the, was it, to the pension schemes well, that, that talked about perhaps putting limitations on this, the right to a transfer. Is this a secure process? Is there more that could be done to make sure that when members do express an interest in a transfer, they have to take the, the right sort of the financial advice? That's a very interesting question. And I think that the main thing which is very helpful is the idea that's been flagged up around trustees being aware of who the IFA is and needing to know who's behind these transfer requests. And, and actually that's something that we've been able to do from a practical basis. And I think that's what trustees are all about is what can we actually practically do? And what we, can, what we can do is make sure that we're aware if one IFA is behind multiple transfer requests, because you do get a sense then it's not hypothetical, it's, then it's actually real. You can get the administrators to ask the right questions. And that's what protects members. But ultimately, transfers have to be a member choice. It's about trying to protect members. But for me personally, stopping members taking transfers, unless there's a financial reason from the scheme's perspective to do so, and there's no choice but to do that, it seems unconscionable. That's my personal view. The way to do it is to put practical um, solutions around it to make sure that members are protected. David, is that something you'd agree with? Or can you think of other ways that maybe could protect members should they need it? No, I, I think that's right. And I think the point about understanding how decisions are being made and potentially being influenced, uh, members' decisions are being influenced by common parties is, is an interesting theme. And just the, the extent to which there's, whether it's groupthink or a bit of a bit of a wave of discussion that happens around members and, and trying to understand the influence that that is having on the decisions and, and where those transfer requests are coming from is, is, is valuable. But I think that's a, a really important theme for, for trustees. Right then, if we move on to the second topic of the day, we reported last week on research shared with us by David Jamieson of Insight Investment showing the apparent inflationary effects of the RPI reform consultation, suppressed demand during the consultation, 
seems to have left some playing catch up when it comes to inflation hedging, but the limited number of index linked bonds available means that demand is far outstripping supply. And that has had knock on effects even for CPI linked liabilities as well. So David, I think sticking with you to begin with this one, um, I mean, if you've had a chance to read through the story, are these findings what you'd have expected to see? Could they have been anticipated that reforming the inflation measure produces inflation itself? Talk us through the causes and consequences. Yes, and, and I think, I mean, the backdrop of it is, is exactly as you described, you know, inflation or the inflation market in the UK, the market for inflation hedging assets is, is really driven by the, the relative supply and demand. And as we know, a, a huge volume of demand from, from pension schemes and limited supply. And we've seen, again, the government moving to reduce further or the DMO to reduce further that supply of inflation-linked instruments. And I think that was pent up or led to allow that pent-up demand to come through. And as the fog cleared from the consultation, we saw very quickly on that one day the increase in the price of inflation or, or inflation protection. You know, it's often we often say, you know, in markets sort of buy the rumour and, and sell the fact. And the rumour had been sort of led to potentially to some of these depressed prices, and we saw that unwind very rapidly on the day of the announcement. But I think fundamentally this has been an issue for a long time. You know, that mismatch in demand and supply has been there and has really impacted the market for decades and doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. You know, as long as we have inflation protected benefits for um, whether that's RPI or, or CPI protected benefits, as long as we have those, the demand is there. And without natural sources of supply, it's going to be tough. It's still tough for trustees and, and it's that willingness to pay over and above the long term inflation expectations to get that protection that they require. Just staying with you for the moment, David, I mean, is it possible to quantify what sort of impact this has on scheme funding levels when you drive up liabilities like this? I mean, is it, does it, I'm assuming it does vary scheme by scheme, but is it, is it possible to put a ballpark figure on, on the, the upward pressure? It's an interesting question in that the liabilities or, or the pension benefits, the pension promises w will increase by the realized level of inflation. And so actually over time, the amount that is uh, it needs to be paid out in terms of benefits will directly correlate with that inflation promise. The bit that you're observing is what does it cost in addition to protect the risk against that and the short-term risk, the funding risk, which is which is a slightly different dynamic. And and when when we look at the inflation market, we we often look at they're trying to segment, and I think what you're you're almost getting to here is segment the difference between the fundamental economic expectations of inflation and separate from that the impact of supply and demand. So you have these two different things. And fundamentally, this hasn't changed the expectation of future inflation. It's changed the measure that will be used. But I actually reduced that down to, to CPI, which has had a scheme-specific impact depending on the, on the nature of the liabilities. And it's changed the, the supply and demand quite quickly or reverted that imbalance between demand and supply. That was a very long-winded way of saying the answer really depends on the scheme, um, <laughs> where they were in terms of CPI and RPI, uh, in terms of their benefit structure, how they were positioned in terms of hedging that inflation risk, and, and to some extent, their long-term ambitions about self-sufficiency or buyout and, and that time horizon as well. And, and Joe, I mean, it was pointed out to me when I was writing the story that you know, whatever else you might say about it, the closure of the consultation, it does at least restore some element of certainty for trustees in particular. But as we've just heard, there is certainty. On the other hand, it's a very complicated job trying to work out exactly what that certainty entails. Does this mean trustees are incredibly reliant on, on investment consultants and advisors? Um, or, or is there a good body of knowledge amongst trustees themselves? 
That's an interesting question. I would say that the professional trustees clearly who are doing this day in, day out have had the benefit of internal experience and, and external advice, um, possibly a, a step ahead. But equally, you know, because this is an economic fundamental, anybody on the trustee board who's a lay trustee who has a background in finance, you know, tends to have a view as well. So I would say that the trustees are fairly well equipped and certainly on my boards, I had a flurry of emails that day saying, what does this mean for us? I need bespoke information. We had the every single consultancy sent, sent around a sort of round robin saying very, very broad terms, this is what's happened. And every single trustee board, all of the trustees wanted to know exactly what it meant for them. And of course, what they found was a lot of it has already been priced in. On my schemes, for the majority, we were already very well hedged. There were a fair, fair amount aren't that sensitive to inflation anyway. So I think there was a bit of disappointment almost amongst the trustee board that actually not much was going to change from one day to the next. And anything that was going to come of it was going to be dealt with at the next triennial. Fair enough. In which case, we'll move on to the, the final topic of the day, and that is the impending deadline for self-certification as demanded by the, the CMA, falling, I think, on the January the 7th uh, next year. The CMA's Investment Consultancy and Fiduciary Management Market Investigation Order 2019, which really trips off the tongue, if nothing else, uh, must, per our report last Sunday, fulfil two requirements. First, they must identify all scheme service providers that fall within the CMA's definition of investment consultants, set them strategic objectives for those providers. Uh, second, they must identify all the schemes fiduciary managers and run a competitive tender for these appointments where the regulator's rules require it, which also trips off the tongue. Trustees have until January 7th till uh, to submit uh, a certificate and a compliance statement signed by them to state they will comply with the rules and they will continue to do so. Um, and Joe, if I can begin with, with you on this one, how much work does this represent at the moment for trustees? I mean, is it just a tick box exercise or is it a bit more substantive than that? It depends on the scheme is how I would rephrase it. So so, so last year we put in place all of the scheme for each scheme, some, some strategic objectives. And for some schemes, we have felt that that was enough for now and we're able to send in our certificate. We waited till the 10th of December, we pressed the button and off it's gone. For other schemes, we've we've taken the opportunity to give um, some quite clear feedback to our investment consultants, good and bad. And on one of my larger schemes, we have really taken the opportunity to take a step back and set new strategic objectives for the next year because we did a big strategic review this year. So then the question is, well, what are we going? What do we need from you next year? I don't want this to be a tick box exercise because it takes quite a lot of time and energy. So could we please use it for something actually real? which I think the investment consultants in question were quite surprised about because they were perfectly happy with it being a tick box. But actually, we've come out with an excellent conversation and we've had some new ideas and we know where we're going, all, all, all as a result of that. But yes, this is, for a lot of schemes, it will be, a, we put them in place. Some of them we put in place with the help of the investment consultants in question, so who told us what they wish to be marked against. Although, to be fair, for Ross trustees, we did have our own, our own version. And, and it's all about making sure that before Christmas, before everybody goes off to enjoy their mince pies and forgets about it, we, we want to have those in ready and done so that we don't have to worry about it the first week back in January. Sounds perfectly sensible to me. I mean, am I right in thinking that, that the rules become a bit more onerous or are expected to over the course of next year? Is there some new introduction uh, or amendment to the rules being made? I don't think TPR are taking over the enforcement of them, aren't they? I mean, what are these new rules, if there are any, likely to entail, do you think? Is it going to become more complicated? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that they will become more, more onerous. I, I think, as you mentioned, there's the, the sort of transfer responsibility from the CMA to the TPR. And, and actually, providing a certificate and filing things to the CMA feels odd for a lot of trustees and for, 
and for providers as well. So once it's under the TPR umbrella, I think that will be interesting. The other one, I think Joe, Joe touched on it on it there really was people do want these to be meaningful. And, and I think what we're seeing is that having put the objectives in place 12 months ago, there hasn't yet really been time to make those assessments around um, of performance against those objectives and are the service providers delivering and how are they being assessed by, against the objectives that, that have been put in place. Uh, and I think that's probably a job for, for next year and beyond. And, and we've certainly been having conversations with trustee boards about the sort of information, the timelines, how frequently they want to be reviewing it. And I think it does does serve to put in place a, a good framework for, for trustees. You know, for, from our side as a, as a fiduciary management provider, there, there are a few other um, obligations, some that fall on us and some that fall on our trustee clients to, to meet around the CMA uh, order from 2019. And, and then finally, you know, particularly around those fiduciary management arrangements, there is still a process for, for some uh, schemes to do that man, the compulsory tendering and, and, and the time frame for that will continue over the next six months or so as trustees fall into uh, or trustee boards, sorry, pension funds fall into the time frame for having to do those mandatory tenders. So I think there's still more to be done for trustees around this. But but sort of echoing what, what Joe uh, has said, we, I don't think anyone wants to be having to wake up on that period between Christmas and New Year and think they need to send an email to the CMA. So yeah, keen to get that done. Pays to be prepared, absolutely. Fantastic. That brings us to the end of the main part of the programme. But of course, there is the always a pensions angle. And I believe, David, you have a suitably festive angle for us. Do you want to take it away? Sure. So, I mean, for me, at least, this is the time of year that I, I sort of wander somewhat cluelessly around department stores searching for that elusive gift, pretty much one gift that I buy every year. And it's always got that familiar soundtrack in the background. And, and actually, you know, I think we, we all know what that is. But this year, of course, it's it's slightly different. My kids have helped me sort of uh, get around the lack of the soundtrack by occasionally walking in and saying, Alexa, play Christmas songs. Or or worse than that, Alexa, play Christmas songs by Parry Grip, which is a bit of a niche area. But there is always a pension angle, and Christmas songs is no different. Noddy Holder once described Slade's Merry Christmas, everybody, as his pension scheme. And there are a few different estimates as to uh, as to the revenue that that generates every year. And it's not a bad pension. Uh, reportedly, it earns an annuity of about a million pounds a year. And not all of that goes to Noddy Holder. Jim Lear, who wrote the chorus, gets roughly half of it as well. And so people like Shane McGowan and, and Mariah, I know she's, she's not there at the pension age, but, you know, are, are seeing good income stream for these pension funds, uh, from these Christmas songs. And JP Morgan recently wrote a piece highlighting that this year has been the biggest increase in digital streaming from Christmas songs. So that sparked some renewed interest in music rights as an investment and probably another good year for Noddy on his pension and an option for trustees to be thinking about whether there is any place for uh, music rights in an institutional portfolio. That's good. My mum is a musician. Once a year, every year, she would always say, usually after a bottle of wine, why don't we just write the next big Christmas song and we'll be made for life? Sadly, it's never quite panned out that way. But that does bring us to the end of the show. So thank you to David and to Joe very much for joining us. And it brings us as well to the end of the year, for we are now done with this podcast until January. So to all of you who've taken part in the podcast this year, whether as guests or as listeners, our sincere thanks. Assuming that these vaccines are safe and we stress there is absolutely no reason to suppose that they are not, we look forward to seeing you all again in 2021. But if in some final act of vengeance, 2020 decides that the vaccines are not safe after all, uh, we still look forward to seeing you in 2021, albeit perhaps with three eyes rather than two, tongues for fingers and feet growing out of our ears. But in the meantime, we wish you all a very Merry Christmas and the happiest of New Year's. 
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.